Almost a thousand feet above the ground, at the top of the Eiffel Tower, there was an apartment with the most envy-inducing view in Paris. But no one actually lived in it. What then did happen in this most exclusive of addresses? Welcome to this episode of Paris Gone By, the Parisian history podcast for the curious traveler. I'm Michelle, your host and guide to the Paris of the past. Today we're going to take a look at the not-so-secret apartment at the top of the Eiffel Tower. But before we get into what and how it got there, I wanted to give a special shout-out to my brother, who was the inspiration for this episode. We were discussing the tower. I assume that you do this with your siblings too, right? And he was musing about the apartment and what, well, a lady's magnet that apartment must have been. And a light bulb went off. It was too tantalizing to resist researching. But getting back to the real estate at hand. First of all, did Gustav Eiffel, architect extraordinaire, actually have an apartment on his very famous tower? And what was it like? And did it have an enhancing effect on his social life? In fact, yes, Eiffel did have an apartment on the top floor of the Eiffel Tower. But did he live there? What was it actually like? The Eiffel Tower's website insists that he didn't live at the tower and that a lack of a bedroom implies that he never slept there. And he did actually have a very lovely home in another part of the city that I'm sure was much more comfortable. However, in this tower apartment, he had an office, some reception spaces, and lab spaces, lots of them for experiments throughout, not just on the top floor, but on the other floors as well. I feel like that even though there wasn't a bedroom in this apartment, he probably did actually sleep there periodically after a long evening of socializing or experimenting. It just sort of makes sense. The apartment was located on kind of that second floor of the third floor. Sometimes it's called the fourth floor, but when you access it, you have to go up to the third floor and then walk up those stairs. You you know if you've been, it's the one that is so frustrating to access as you try to follow that tide of tourists up and down those stairs, and you never know when you can slip in. You know what I'm talking about. So once you get up there, what did it look like? Let's break it down. The office is what we see recreated today through the kind of peekaboo window. Supposedly, they're using a lot of the original furniture and decor. It's a lot of wood and patterned wallpaper, of course, from the 1880s, 1890s. The space is very cramped and forced to fit in within the restrictions of the tower architecture. So you can see all the iron girding. There are several photos of possible reception spaces. One is what I would personally call high Victorian lounge or parlor style even though they wouldn't have called a Victorian in France, with very busy wallpaper, lots of upholstered and tasseled furniture and, you know, dark wood. There is one sort of long bench or sofa that would have probably been perfect for those unplanned sleepovers. There is a second space as well that has a more formal vibe with a central circular bench 
upholstered, of course, wrapped around a pillar and chairs and tables scattered around it. It seems more like a place where you would hold cocktail parties and soirees, a little a little more elegant, a little more formal than the other area. To check these photos out and see more of these spaces, head over to the show notes page on pariscumbai.com. But looking at them, how did Eiffel actually use these spaces? Most importantly, he seems to have used the apartment spaces as a reception space for guests, very famous guests. The most famous being Thomas Edison, he of so many inventions that we use today. In fact, while he was there, he gave Eiffel an early phonograph that Edison was showing off at the Exposition Universelle in 1889, which is why the Eiffel Tower was built. I also hope that when Thomas gave Gustav the phonograph, that he also gave him some wax cylinders. I don't feel like those would have been readily available in Paris, but maybe they were also for sale at the Expo. I think Edison was always looking for a way to make a quick buck, or Frank in this case. And this particular scene of Edison and Gustav, this meeting of the minds, has now been immortalized with wax figures inside that little peekaboo apartment on the tower that we can see now. In the background, we also see Gustav's daughter, Claire, ever-present near the architect. Intriguingly, this incredible meeting of the minds was either not recorded in a photograph or the photo has been lost. Jill Jonas, the author of Eiffel's Tower, the uh, book that came out, I think about 15 years ago, really good, wrote an article about the event back in 2009 and included her hunt for the possible photographic evidence that she never found. Unfortunately, she concluded that either it never existed or the family's holding on to it, or perhaps it was destroyed at some point. What's not recorded in that tableau in the museum apartment now is that apparently the French composer Charles Gounod, who had originally bad-mouthed the tower but later recanted, joined the two geniuses and serenaded them on Eiffel's piano well into the evening. Ugh, to be a fly on that wall would have been incredible, wouldn't it? In the modern-day display, this incredible meeting takes place in the recreated office space, But the reception spaces could hold a larger number of people and a piano, though I haven't seen one in any of the photographs. Thomas Edison wasn't the only important guest to visit Gustave on the tower. Over the years, French President Sadi Carnot, the future King of England, Edward VII, and his family, and a number of other dignitaries visited it. And to balance it all out, Buffalo Bill Cody and the actress Sarah Bernhardt also visited Eiffel up there. But the private spaces of the tower weren't just for parties and schmoozing, though. Gustav also had multiple laboratories installed, both in his ARE and on the other levels. He performed experiments on various subjects, including atmospheric and meteorological studies, and adding a Foucault's pendulum that was installed to study the Earth's forces, It's no longer on the tower that I know of, but you can see a replica of the original pendulum uh, now in the Pantheon, and the actual original is in the, uh, I think it's in the Arts and Medias Museum in Paris. But his most important experiments were on wind, wind pressure, and aerodynamics. After the success of the tower, huge financial success of the tower, and a brief but traumatizing time in 
prison over a Panama Canal-related scandal. Don't worry, he was actually proven innocent, but not before he had been thrown in jail. Eiffel, after that, decided to dedicate the rest of his life to science and experimentation. Incredibly, he shared his information freely, and he didn't pursue any patents or other legal restrictions on it. He was very generous with his research. He also published books about his findings, including uh, with the translated title, The Resistance of the Air and Aviation, Experiments Carried Out at the Chantemar Laboratory, that he published in 1910. He also received the second-ever Langley Prize in Aviation from the Smithsonian for his aviation research. The first, of course, had gone to the Wright brothers. So besides hosting famous people and conducting very important experiments, what else did Eiffel do up there? Well, those are secrets that have yet to be told. He was a widower in his 50s at this point in time, so some companionship would not have been amiss. But despite what current popular fiction says, it seems that he was not exactly looking for romantic love. And instead, he remained dedicated to his children, especially his favorite daughter, Claire, and to his grandchildren, in addition to his passion for science. So, while he certainly held parties up there at the top of Paris, it wasn't exactly the type of party pad that my brother had speculated about. That said, it was recorded at the time that many people did offer Eiffel money to rent out the space for their own gatherings. He reportedly declined them all. One of the questions I had while researching this episode was, could the public actually access that level at that time? It appears that yes, according to the period guidebooks, which were such a rabbit hole, by the way, both levels of the third floor or third and fourth floor, if you will, were almost always available as viewing platforms. However, it does seem that in the winter months and depending on the year, other restrictions did apply. In 1908, per the Vest Pocket Guide to Paris, the tower was open daily with the lifts from April to November. But during the winter, tourists were only permitted to the second floor and only by the stairs, no elevators. It also indicated that the tower was only open to tourists from noon to dusk, so very limited hours. It was a little bit different as we go back to 1894, so only five years after it opened. According to the popular Baedeker's Guide, the top, top floor, that fourth floor, was only open Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, but the daily hours were slightly longer. According to the book, the tower was open daily from 10 a.m. to dusk from March instead of April to November. However, they don't mention any winter hours at all, so a lot of disparity there. And then when we look even further back at those early plans for the Eiffel Tower, Access to the fourth floor looks to have been planned to be a little bit different according to an early drawing by one of the designers. That drawing shows that the apartment level was completely private, and both an English language and French language guide to the exposition don't mention the ability to go up to that fourth floor platform, though the French one does show a diagram of it and calls it the appartement de Monsieur Eiffel. It seems like it was considered quite private during the exposition at least. 
So sometime between the 1889 Expo and the 1894 Baedeker Guide, things changed, right? The apartment level was open at least part of the time. So basically, in sum, regardless of the time period, Gustav would have had considerable privacy either all of the time or for large parts of the day and sometimes entirely in winter. But the crowds would have been there sometimes. The photos that we have show that he did have pretty big picture windows in this apartment. Of course, you would want those up there. And I wonder how they were blocked off from the public or if they were blocked off, could you just peek in? I feel like there were shutters involved, though, because, of course, this is France and they love their shutters. Also, did he have a private elevator or did he cram in with the tourists? Could you imagine? What's up? Yeah, just go into my pad. It's fine. These things are left unclear in the historic record, unfortunately. Now that we've explored the apartment itself, there is another important question. How exactly did Eiffel end up with an apartment on the tower? Was he just that cool? It's the city's property, isn't it? Well, technically now, yes, it is the city's property. But at the time when it was built, it was a joint financial venture between Eiffel and the state of France. Part of the contract was that Eiffel was primarily responsible for the costs of his creation. They had an entire exposition to build, of course, and their budget didn't extend to building gigantic iron towers. The anticipated total cost of the project was about six and a half million francs. The French government only ponied up one and a half million francs, so Eiffel was then responsible for obtaining that remaining five million and dealing with all of the finances. To do this, he partnered with banks and investors in order to come up with the cash against the anticipated ticket sales from the fair and the 20-year exploitation contract that he held on the tower as part of his deal. And they made their money back supposedly during the fair itself. Originally, after the end of the expo, starting in 1890, he then had exclusive rights to exploit the tower financially for the next 20 years, but the actual ownership flipped from the national government to the city of Paris. So basically, Gustave just had kind of a lease on the tower. In theory, after the 20 years, it would be torn down. But at the end of that contract in 1910, Eiffel managed to get an additional 70-year extension on those exploitation rights. So until 1980, Now, he died, of course, in 1923. This is where, again, it gets a little unclear, but I assume that his heirs then held those rights because the city did not create any formal management organization until 1980 when those rights were up. That is one very impressive inheritance, isn't it? Since he knew that the tower was his for at least 20 years, he built into the designs an apartment for himself It's not quite clear if that was always the intention, like it was in the original plans, or if this was a change made during construction. But either way, well played, Gustav. Well played. So what is the apartment now? It seems that the larger apartment, after Gustav's death in 1923, lay dormant for a while, which I find interesting, since I assume that his family probably still had access to it but perhaps it wasn't worth renovating or they found the tourists too much to bear. 
According to several unconfirmed sources, the only part of the apartment that still exists is the part that we can see. The remaining private spaces either remain laboratories or were converted into additional lab or mechanical spaces, or intriguingly, perhaps a modern apartment with a kitchenette and a few beds. That description was so specific, I almost have to believe it. I wonder if this is actually for staff now, if they have to stay overnight for an event or maintenance or something of that nature. This brings us to the end of the story of Eiffel's place on the Eiffel Tower. Would you have wanted that apartment or would the tourists be too much? I have a serious motion sickness issue and I feel like that constant swaying of the tower would get to me after a while, but I would have loved to have seen that apartment in its heyday. Though I think I would rather hang out with Gounod or Sarah Bernhard or Buffalo Bill than Thomas Edison. If you want to visit the tower, I strongly recommend buying your tickets in advance. And if you're going at peak travel times, I mean buy long in advance, not days, but months if you can. Also, emotionally prepare for a lot of people and standing in very long lines, even with the ticket. You'll need to stand in line to go through security twice, then lines for the elevators. The third floor elevator line is especially mind-numbing, and I find it somewhat denigrating in a way, but they are working on that. They've been adding, you know, things to keep you a little more entertained while you're in line. And it's also not cheap, and it's not covered by any pass. And frankly, you can get good views of Paris with the Eiffel Tower in the view from Montparnasse Tower, the Arc de Triomphe, or even the Grand Magasins like the Printemps or Galerie Lafayette. That said, is it worth it? I think so, yes. If you have the time and the money, it absolutely is worth it. It's There's something unique about being on the Iron Lady, surrounded by that incredible iron structure and looking out at Paris. If you can swing it, I recommend it at least once. But if you are short on time, or money, or both, then I recommend just swinging by, grabbing some great photos from the Champ de Mar or the Trocadero across the river, and then moving on to cheaper, hopefully less crowded pastures. As always, thank you for going on this tour of Eiffel's most impressive piece of real estate. To go deeper into this episode, read the blog, and explore more resources, please check out the website at parisgumby.com. And if you loved what you heard, please do subscribe or leave a comment. It really does help bring PGB to the masses. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day. A bientôt.